Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A recent report from the Deseret News is headlined, The New Asylums, How Utah Traps the Mentally Ill Behind Bars. Reporters Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero spent several months investigating this problem, and they report that across Utah, nearly 70 mentally ill men and women are, who are supposed to be receiving mental health treatment are instead trapped in jail cells. They're getting sicker. They're being released without treatment. They're dying. They're not supposed to be there. Charged with crimes but too sick to answer for them at court, they're stuck, waiting for an opening at the only facility in the state that can prepare them to face the legal system, Utah State Hospital in Provo. They go on to report that Utah spends $20 million per year uh, rescuing mentally ill inmates who have hit their lowest point instead of catching them when their symptoms are less severe. And the Deseret News editorial board, following up this report, is uh, calling for a special legislative session to fund and fix Utah's mental health system. We're talking about this on the program today. You're welcome to join us at 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. And we bring in Deseret News reporters Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero. Daphne Chen, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thanks for being with us. Mackenzie Romero, thank you. Good morning. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, some, some pretty uh, startling statistics here. I think I want to start with how, uh, how Utah compares with, you compared Utah with surrounding six states uh, uh, in terms of the wait times. So, what is the comparison? I guess either of you. Yeah, so, yeah, this is Daphne here. Um, that was one of the most important things we wanted to figure out is how does Utah compare to um, other states in the region. So we surveyed um, six or seven intermountain states and found that Utah has the longest wait list. Um, the next longest, I believe, was Wyoming, which takes a little over a month to get into the hospital. You know, Colorado takes about 17 days. Um, several places like Arizona don't have any waiting list at all. And um, in comparison, um, in Utah, it takes several months to get there, about five months right now. Um, well, at the time that we wrote the article, um, which was, you know, a month or two ago. So let me turn to Mackenzie Romero. You know, some might say, well, you know, that's okay. They're, they're, they're in jail. Don't they receive some services there? Well, we've been, or at least I have, I've been pretty surprised to see the, the response from readers and people who, who haven't been willing to, to make that concession or, or even maybe a reaction that we, that we feared is that there might not be very much sympathy for these people because uh, readers might say, well, you know what, they're charged with crimes. This is, what, this is just how it happens. But actually there's been a lot of uh, response, people saying that, that, you know what, if other states can do this, we should be able to do the same to, to offer better care and better services to, to our, our neighbors, our family members here in the state. And uh, Daphne Chen, it's uh, you, t- you tell some stories here, you and Mackenzie Romero, that they're just heartbreaking, mm-hmm. um, and and inmates getting worse in jail, just worse and worse. I wonder maybe you could tell tell the story of uh, Matt Hall, who uh, and some of, some of these charges aren't you know they're misdemeanor charges or or lower felony charges. What was Matt Hall Hall charged with? Absolutely. So um, Matt Hall um, did have. Um, some charges, but um, it was a really sad story, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, we learned about it through his brother, and we actually um, started interviewing the family before he passed away. Um, so what happened was um, he had been getting work. Sounds like maybe we've lost 
Oh, yeah. yeah um, we may have lost yeah. Daphne. Yeah, we'll, um, I can we'll, kinda, uh, we'll try to get her back. So, Mackenzie, up. why don't you take up the story? Yeah, I can kind of pick up where Daphne left off. Um, Daphne was the one who really connected with the Hall family. And like she said, she started uh, speaking to them uh, about Matt and his situation in that in that period between the time that he was injured in jail and the time that he passed away. And uh, really, it was just a heartbreaking story from this family who uh, they'd watched and they'd waited and they'd seen him declining. And uh, there was there was no change, really, in in there was no real momentum to get him out of the jail and into the state hospital where it had been determined he needed to be uh, before his his case could advance, uh, which, like you said, really wasn't that serious of a case. Yeah, he he had been charged with uh, officers confronted him, asking for his name, I think. He didn't want to give his name, and then he became agitated, and he took the officer's laser, I think, and, and ran away. Is that what happened? Yeah, uh, it was It was just a, a confrontation on the street. Uh, there had been a call about him maybe acting a little concerning. And so when uh, when the officers confronted him, he didn't want to give his name. And, and uh, going after the officer's taser really is what kind of escalated that situation, escalated the charges. But still, they were these weren't serious violent offenses um it was it was uh it was just a, a troubling interaction with the police that led to some some misdemeanor charges Daphne Chen, i believe we have you back that's right sorry about that okay we uh, maybe you could uh, tell us what uh, so we were continuing matt hall's story a bit uh, what happened with the police and what what got him uh, in into jail now what happened with uh, matt hall in in jail Right. So um, once he was in jail, um, his condition was worsening uh, clearly very quickly. I mean, the jail records show that um, very soon after he was there, the guards were worried about him. Um, his fellow inmates were worried about him, that he was zombie-like at times, walking around in a daze, um, wasn't eating, he lost weight. Um, his court-appointed attorney um, felt like he could not communicate with him. And so um, they eventually... Um, the judge eventually ordered him to get treatment, mental health treatment, at the Utah State Hospital. But from that point on, he waited and waited and waited because they could not find a bed for him. It took about six months, um, and this entire time, the jail logs show that he is just getting even worse um, until one day, one night, very late, um, you know, the video cameras capture him wandering around completely naked in a cell and then suddenly taking a run at the wall um, and, and smashing his head into it as hard as he can. And he does this um, two more times, um, and then uh, he climbs onto a, a handrail um, in, the, in the cell and jumps off. Um, and, you know, because of his injuries that he sustained um, in this incident, he eventually ended up dying in the hospital. Just, uh, he never made it to the state hospital for treatment. Yeah, just heartbreaking. Um, in fact, yeah. I, want, I want to... Uh, just read it at the very end of your, this is a capper on your, on the whole report, uh, quoting his brother, Nate Hall. Um, Nate says he didn't have anything other than charges he got from them arresting him. He didn't have drugs on him. He didn't have weapons, didn't do nothing. All this because a cop wanted his name and didn't uh, want to, to tell him. It all started from just that. And, uh, and Matt Hall's dead. Exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, we ended with that because, you know, we felt like it just showed sort of um, how these things escalate when um, preventive care is not given. Uh, this is the end result. Uh, so uh, let's return back to Mackenzie Romero. Uh, you quote in the article, uh, Aaron Kinkini, uh, Legal Director of Disability Law Center. In fact, they, they sued the state um, a while they ago. Did. They did. Um, and that lawsuit had been ongoing since September 2015. Um, and so when we reached out to the Disability Law Center, they were ready and eager to, to talk about this issue because it had been one that they had been trying to see some movement on uh, for a while. What their lawsuit alleged was actually that in this waiting time, people were being kept in custody longer than the Constitution allows, which is longer than the potential maximum sentence that they could remain in custody if they were convicted. Because, again, we're dealing with people who haven't been convicted of any crime. They're innocent until proven guilty, but they can't move forward in the legal system because they've been found incompetent to do so. So Um, this lawsuit was meant to address that, and uh, we've seen some movement on it uh, after kind of months and years of of radio silence here, uh, shortly after the article was published. Aaron Kinkini, I want to quote this from your article. It says, there's just not enough mental health resources in the community. When mental illness goes untreated in the community, it's going to emerge in the backs of our police cars, county jails, and the courtrooms. So so he's advocating, this bill law center is advocating for, I guess, earlier intervention community health. Yes, um, that was part of the, uh, while the lawsuit doesn't necessarily address uh, that that aspect, this is what the Disability Law Center says could be the solution, is finding people earlier on before they reach this point, offering them treatment and services rather than just locking them up and allowing them to continue to decline. Instead, the idea is to to find them earlier, to intervene earlier, and get them moving on an upward trajectory instead of that decline that we see while incarcerated. So we go along, I want to uh, have you talk about some, uh, you you looked at uh, systems in other states, other areas, and uh, there are some potential solutions, I guess, that Utah could bring bring here. I wonder if you could tell me the story, one of you, uh, of uh, Diane Priggy, I'm not sure how you uh, pronounce her name. Yeah, it's Diane Priggy. and she was uh, she was someone that kind of came onto our radar right as we were finishing up this story. Um, you know, she was a woman who was facing some very minor charges in Utah County, um, and but because uh, because of the wait time, had been uh, in had been held in the Utah County Jail. It was we were coming up on a year that she'd been in jail. Uh, when we published the story, and five months of that had been on a wait list to get into the Utah State Hospital. Now, uh, tell me what she, uh, what did she do that got her in jail? Uh, she was arrested uh, trying to get back into a home that she had recently been evicted from. So we don't, we don't know all the details there. Court documents don't totally illustrate it, but I think the question that was in a lot of people's minds was uh, if she was in this uh diminished mental uh, situation, did she even really know what she was that she, what she was trying to do, you know, that she wasn't supposed to be in that home? And some communications that we've seen from her from the jail, letters that she's written to the judge, uh, suggest that, that she, doesn't, uh, she doesn't understand that she had been evicted at that point, but rather she, she believed that uh, her landlord was keeping her out of her home unjustly. 
Um, I want to bring out this in. This is from the comments to the uh, to your story. Uh, this is R.G., who brings up a point that I think others may have brought up. This is sort of a side issue, but somewhat related to your article. R.G. says, if someone was obviously insane when they committed a crime, what is the point of trying to make them sane so they can stand trial? Their state of mind when the crime was committed should be the key factor. That's not where the law is at this point, right? They, the, the law allows for, and in fact, many of these people are trying to be brought to competency so they can participate in their defense and, and be charged. Yeah, and this is one point that we that we hoped to make uh, in this article, and, and but it still can be complicated uh, for people to understand. When we're talking about restoring someone to competency to face charges to proceed in court or participate in legal proceedings, we're not talking about taking someone who's mentally ill and then bringing them to a point where they're no longer mentally ill. What competency means <clears throat> in terms of being able to answer for uh, charges under the law is that you have... Uh, an understanding of, of what's going on, of what the charges are against you, what the potential consequences for that charge is, uh, understanding the fact that the decisions that you make in court have repercussions and what those repercussions are, and above all, being able to communicate with your lawyer to participate in your own defense. So uh, when we're talking about you know the three people in in our story and all of these people who have been found uh, incompetent to proceed in court and are on wait lists for treatment at the Utah State Hospital. We're not talking about uh, healing them or curing them or, or, or uh, helping them overcome their mental illness, but really just bringing them to that level of ability to be able to participate in their case. And in Utah, the wait uh, times are so long in some cases that they, they reach a constitutional limit, right? Uh, I guess the, the limit of what they could have received in a sentence for their original crime. If you reach that limit, you'd have to let them go. Yeah, exactly. That's what happened in Diane Priggy's case, or was about to happen in Diane Priggy's case at the time that we wrote about her. Um, she, she had sort of a complicated um, situation where she had cases in two different areas. Um, but in each case, um, the limit was about six months because the law says that you cannot um, hold someone, incarcerate someone um, longer than they would have been sentenced to do a stint in prison um, had they been found guilty. And in her case, she had yet to be found guilty. Um, and so what the Utah State Hospital asked the judge to do was basically to um, release her from their custody, and they cited the fact that they were, quote, striving to maximize efficiencies related to the beds in their hospital. Um, and so at the time that we wrote this, um, her case was coming up on that deadline. It was it looked like it was a big possibility that she would just be released um, and have to cycle back through, basically. Um, but since we wrote the article, um, a bed was found, and so she is there right now in the hospital um, as we speak, getting treatment. And again, as, uh, uh, as you've uh, made the, the, the point earlier, um, competency is, is not cured, right? Or it's not, <laughs> it's not restored to, to sanity. Right. Competency is just is a lower bar, no. right? Exactly. It's, it's um, pretty much just getting them to a very, very basic level of at least understanding the charges against them and being able to participate in their defense. It does not mean that um, they're healthy again. And so, you know, that's why we made the point that right now Utah spends one out of every $5 in mental health on this process of 
competency restoration. That's about $20 million a year just kind of rescuing um, these these people um, from this very, very low point just so that they can get either sentenced or that so that they can stand trial. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what Aaron Kinney Kinney of the Disability Law Center is talking about um, when he's saying, why can't we catch these people earlier um, and, and kind of prevent them from even getting caught up in this system? Um, you know, mental illness is a health care issue um, in his mind. I don't know if you've uh, done, this is a different system, of course, the prisons. You've, you report here on jails. If someone does uh, get uh, up to competency, they are sentenced uh, to prison. Do they receive adequate uh, mental health care there in prison? Um, they, they do receive mental health care in prison. Um, actually, one of the interesting things is that a lot of our jails and prisons have sort of become de facto mental health care centers for a lot of people, um, not just in Utah, but across the nation. Um, the mental health um, unit at the Utah State Prison, I believe, has more beds even than the Utah State Hospital. Um, so so they, they do get care there. Um, I think whether or not it's adequate, um, you know, is, is up for debate. Um, and whether or not they get adequate care after they're released is a big, big question. Um, because for some, for some parents, um, they actually are so desperate that they want their children to be arrested and booked because that's the only way that they can access these services. Um, but once they're let out, um, if they have trouble accessing mental health care in the, in the community um, or, you know, they don't have um, assistance when their child is refusing to take their medication again, um, this cycle simply repeats itself. Uh, just before we go to break, I want to uh, have you talk to me a little bit about, and there's only a little bit in the article about Dan Priggy's parents. You contacted them, and, the, and I imagine they're, they'd be representatives of some uh, segment of the, of the population. Who, it sounds like they'd just been beat down by 40 years of, of trying to deal with their, their daughter's mental illness, and they didn't want to talk about it. Exactly. Um, yeah, we, we showed up on their doorstep because we wanted to reach out to them, but um, they declined to comment for the article just out of respect for the relationship they have with their daughter and how difficult it's been over the years. And since we've written this article, we've received a number of um, messages or calls from other parents who are going through the same thing. I mean, they all tell the same story. Years of heartbreak, frustration, trying to get their kids care. Um, often, um, you know, it, it, it strains a relationship, and, and some, some of them don't have any relationship at all anymore. Um, it is really, really, really difficult for these families out there, and they have very little support. Uh, coming up in the next segment, I want to have you uh, tell me a story of James Norman. Uh, he, he's a former Mormon missionary, uh, quoting from your story, whose bright future turned into a decade of bouncing between jail cells and state hospital for his crimes, including one of the crimes he accused of is allegedly killing another mentally ill man at the Utah State Hospital six years ago. Just before we go to break, um, the, James Norman's parents, they, they did talk to you, and uh, the mother said something very striking. She said that... Uh, that there are worse things for a parent than the than the than uh, death. She did. That was a very uh, poignant interview. Very emotional, and uh, really, it took years for the Normans to reach the point that they were ready to talk about uh, their son's situation. And it all kind of came from this this frustration and kind of powerless feeling, not knowing how to not knowing how to support their son who who. They've been dealing, 
uh, dealing with for years, trying to trying to get him help. But they face this question of, you know, he's an adult. They can't obligate him to do anything. And uh, after all of that, this is where he's ended up. Let's take a break. When we come back, more this important article in the Deseret News, a recent article. The headline is, The New Asylums, How Utah Traps the Mentally Ill Behind Bars. And we have with us the reporters Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero from the Deseret News. Hope to have your comment as well. Maybe you have an experience from your family. Uh, love to get your comment on this at 800-826-1495. Or you can uh, comment or uh, have a question to us at by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. This is Learning Life's Lessons. Life Lessons about career. Cover all your bases. I got a BA in MSW Healthcare and an MPA in Public Administration. I work full-time to do my part-time jobs. You have to love what you do or don't apply. Always have time for family, friends, church, work, and play. Learning Life's Lessons on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU University Inn and Conference Center Summer Citizens Program, celebrating 40 years of living and learning at the top of Utah. Information at summercitizens.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking with Deseret News reporters Mackenzie Romero and Daphne Chen. The headline in the recent in-depth report is The New Asylums, How Utah Traps the Mentally Ill Behind Bars. They report that inmates are being forced to wait five months or more to get into the Utah State Hospital, uh, far exceeding wait times in six other western states. Some are dying before they get there. Others are being held for so long the state is forced to release them from jail before they ever set foot in a hospital. Mental health advocates are saying that Utah needs to fix the system, saying it's a crisis of unimaginable proportions, Um, and we're talking about it. In fact, the Deseret News editorial board is calling for a special session of the legislature to fund and fix, as they say, the mental health system uh, in Utah. We'd love to know what you think. Love to get your experience. Uh, perhaps you have uh, experienced uh, s- something in your family you'd like to tell us about. We'd uh, love to hear from you. 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. I just want to uh, quote this, uh, in you know, just illustrative of uh, a family's pain. Um, this is from Patty P. This is the comments uh, responding to this article that we're talking about in the Deseret News. Patty P. in Saratoga Springs uh, says, We have a son that's been diagnosed uh, as a paranoid schizophrenic. He's 38 years old, currently serving 60 days in our county jail. Continues to be in and out of jail. May end up back at the state prison for misdemeanor crimes because he doesn't show up for his court dates. Uh, people who are schizophrenic don't always understand that they're sick. I read my son's journals. My heart it was broken as I read his entries, trying to make sense of the voices he hears. For a while, he thought we were talking to him telepathically and lying to him when we said we weren't. He takes illegal drugs to quiet the voices and ends up in jail for that also. And uh, then she goes on. So that's that's just one family's experience. And uh, Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero talked uh, to, to several of these families that are just uh, going through uh, heartbreak. 
Um, so I wonder if uh, what if you could uh, tell me the story of James Norman. He's a former Mormon missionary. It seemed as these things happened, things seemed okay, and then one day, uh, his uh, wife called his mother, said he'd, he's he's been, been behaving strangely. Yeah, James Norman's family, uh, his parents talked to me in their home uh, about their experience with James. Talked to talked about him as a boy growing up that he was that he was popular, that he was kind, that he had good friends, good relationships with his family, good relationships with his siblings, and seemed to have uh, every every promising opportunity there in front of him. After his LDS mission, he uh, went to school, got a job, was married, and had a baby on the way when uh, this mental illness that they never had any sign of started to manifest itself. And it sounds like kind of kind of quickly and, and severely. You mentioned that phone call from his wife, uh, who, who hasn't been in the picture now for, for many years, to his mother, saying that she didn't know what to do, that uh, uh, James had started acting strangely, that he thought that uh, some people speaking on C-SPAN were, were sending coded messages to him. And that was kind of the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. Yeah, very sad. And then, and then it uh, it deteriorated from there. In fact, he had a promising job. He he quit his job and kind of bounced around uh, the system. He ends up at a certain point in the Utah State Hospital, right? And then things get even worse. Yeah, uh, you mentioned uh, that the reader comment from from Patty there about how he didn't believe he was sick, and that's something that the Normans have said that all along. Uh, James has been insistent that that he's not sick, uh, that uh, the world just doesn't understand, and if he can if he can just make everybody listen, then they'll realize that uh, there's this conspiracy against him, or that uh, everything's being taken the wrong way. Um, and so he he started he, he kind of fell into the justice system for some of these low-level, misdemeanor kind of petty crimes, uh, all of which were connected to his delusions in one way or another. Uh, but while it was in the Utah State Hospital, um, that's where these allegations come from that he's accused of, of killing a roommate uh, when they were, they were left alone in their room to sleep. Uh, the family thinks there's more to the story, I think. Um... But uh, the the mother said something very interesting, very poignant. She said, essentially, paraphrasing her, I I can't really use my son as a poster child for the I can't I can't use him to to move forward on this because he's accused of killing someone. Yeah, they said that for years they'd seen this uh, they'd seen this struggle uh, in in the justice system where they thought that their son was finally going to get some help because. While they couldn't obligate him to go to a doctor to get help because he was an adult, they couldn't order him to take his medication, uh, the, the court could. And so when he eventually uh, crossed paths with, with police and ended up on the wrong side of the law, as they, they kind of saw as inevitable, they, they hoped that that was going to be a solution. But instead, they watched for years as it seemed things started to get worse right up until uh, he ended up facing this, this charge of murder. And so as, as they faced this situation, 
um, they said that they they wondered where they could go for help. They wanted to make people aware of the situation that their son was in, and they realized that more and more families were in. And then they realized that more than likely no one was going to listen. Uh, at one point, was it James Norman? He he uh, takes the family van, ends up in California. Was that was that James? Yeah, that's James. Um, According to his family, a lot of his delusions stem from wanting to wanting to help people in need, believing that there are people who need rescue or who need care. Um, a lot of that, they say, stems kind of from some of the poverty that he saw during his LDS mission in Honduras. And, and so that now plays into his delusions decades later. And so he he set off with all this food and water in the family van, thinking that he was going to help someone ends up in, in California in a construction site. And uh, when police found him there wandering around wrapped in this quilt that his mother had made him for his wedding, he said that he was he was there searching for his wife, but couldn't answer any questions from the police about why he thought that she might be there or whether or not she'd ever been in California. And so what uh, his parents said was that they realized right away that he was mentally ill. And rather than throwing him in jail, they got him help. So it you know it seems like a better a better you know training of police that would that would pay dividends. I, I think there is some training of police, isn't there, to deal with the mentally ill in Utah? There is um, a lot of, and every, every police department in the state is going to to have their own uh, their own training and their own standards to prepare them for these kinds of situations. But uh, what it seems the difference is here isn't just one thing like police training, uh, but it's system-wide that uh, because it, it goes far beyond the, the police officer who encounters a mentally ill person. In this situation, uh, rather than uh, viewing this as a criminal offense, they've, they've viewed it as an incident con- related to mental illness, which goes on to show, I think, uh, a greater understanding across the board and an entirely different approach to something like this. Uh, This is very similar to a lot of the incidents that uh, James Norman uh, faced charges for in Utah, things like trespassing, uh, which were viewed as crimes. I want to get into some uh, what some other places are doing. Uh, Miami-Dade County seems to have a successful program going. But uh, the the uh, just to reset the scene here, we're talking with uh, Desert News reporters Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero, and their recent uh, in-depth report is headlined "The New Asylums: How Utah Traps the Mentally Ill Behind uh, Bars." You can join the program at upraxcess at gmail dot com, upraxcess at gmail dot com, or eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. Uh, so I want to have one of you uh, talk about, you You did a little history here. You talked with uh, John Snook, Executive Director of Treatment Advocacy Center in Arlington, Virginia. He he uh, he said the, this cycle uh, began, uh, can be traced back to the 1960s uh, when the Kennedy administration began to push to deinstitutionalize what were commonly called insane asylums. I think, you know, most would agree that uh, we don't want the old insane asylums, right? Exactly, yeah. So... Um, you know, you can think about books like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that um, during the 1960s started to expose um, some of the atrocities going on in these so-called insane asylums. Um, and that publicity really um, started the push to um, close those down um, and to replace them with mental health services in a community, thinking like, for example, community clinics. At the same time, there were also a lot of new drugs coming out that were very promising when it came to 
um, you know, improving the mental states of a lot of people and a lot of mental illnesses. Um, the problem was that as they took away funding for these uh, mental institutions, they didn't, uh, the government didn't put in an equal amount of investment into these community clinics and for community mental health. And so um, there are charts that you can see as the number of people in um, mental health institutions goes down, the number of people in our jails and prisons starts to go up. Um, and so that is why, you know, we call this um, article the new asylums because a lot of our jails and prisons have become the people that um, take care of our mentally ill population, even if they're not exactly the right place to do so. And uh, there's some back and forth in the comment section, and one uh, listener says, uh, named Tolstoy, uh, it, it talks about, well, I think what uh, kind of conventional wisdom that uh, Ronald Reagan, under Ronald Reagan, that uh, a lot of these institutions were uh, starved of funding. Uh, Tolstoy says, Ronald Reagan Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1981 repealed President Carter's Mental Health Systems Act, which was supposed to continue federal funding for mental health, mental health programs and shut down mental uh, institutions. Um, and so the, the history has been it, it. It has put a lot more pressure on on the jails, as you point out in the article. Absolutely. Um, actually, one of the interesting um, holdovers from, from that time also is this exclusion, um, which prohibits federal funding for so-called um, Medicaid institutions for mental disease. So, um, you know, inpatient psychiatric um, services, um, such as um, the Utah State Hospital, uh, is not funded by Medicaid. What do, uh, what do the sheriffs think? What do the people actually run the jails? What do they think? So we uh, we talked to a, a representative of the Weber County Sheriff's Office. Uh, so that's that's the county jail that Matt Hall was in. Uh, and uh, while while this uh, this deputy that we spoke to didn't interact with with Matt Hall directly, you know, as as a spokesman for for the department, what he said was. You know, we we would rather see these people who need mental health treatment in a facility where they can get it. And he said, you know, and and as simple as it sounds, it's kind of a powerful statement coming from his perspective that a jail is not a hospital, which we all know. But at the same time, that's where that's where these mentally ill individuals are. And what he said is that. Uh, the men and women who work in the jail, who work in the sheriff's office, all they can do is their best to try to to care for these individuals while they while they bide their time and wait to get into the Utah State Hospital. But at the end of the day, that's not really what they're there to do or what they're trained to do, and they can't offer uh, the same kind of care that these people need and that they could be getting at the Utah State Hospital. And I believe the studies show that uh, mentally ill are victimized at a higher rate in jails, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, they're, uh, you know, compared to inmates who are not, who do not have a mental illness, um, they're more likely to be abused, um, sexually assaulted, and every single um, sheriff that we spoke to talked about how they've seen them decline just just health-wise in, in the jail um, because of the things that McKenzie just talked about. Um, so th- this is a, not the right place for them and probably a dangerous place for them to be. So what's the solution? Uh, there, there are states you, you cite in Texas. They threw some money at this, but it, some advocates are saying that's just a Band-Aid. Um, what have other states' uh, areas tried? 
Yeah, um, some states have tried um, contracting these types of services out, privatizing them in hopes that it would get better results. Um, some, like Texas and Utah, have um, have opened up beds within the jail um, in in the attempt to kind of increase the number of beds and also um, just you know, feeling like it'll be more efficient because these inmates are already in a jail. Let's just open up some of these mental health beds um, within that facility itself. Um, But, you know, like we've seen in Texas, um, they did this as well as a couple other um, small fixes after getting sued for how long its wait list was. And the the wait list dipped a little bit and then went up again in recent years. Um, And so the other approach taken by some other states or counties um, is this very top-down, um, expansive mental health reform. And the most famous example of that is in Miami-Dade County, where 15 years ago they just they, they redid everything. They retrained their police officers. Um, they created this sort of diversion program where you, you get them help instead of putting them straight into the criminal justice system, especially if they are low-level, nonviolent offenders. And they created an entire center separate from the psychiatric hospital, um, just for this process of competency restoration. And what they did is not only try to prepare them to get to that basic level of ability to participate in their own defense, they really trained them, or they really took care of these inmates with an eye towards getting them permanently um, back into society, well again to, to rejoin society and never end up back in a jail or a prison again. And so it, it was... It was nurses, it's case managers, it's psychiatrists, it's social workers. And in addition, they continued to monitor them for a year after they were discharged, um, making sure that they were getting access to housing, access to treatment in the community. Um, and this program appeared to work really well. People who got aftercare services had 75% fewer jail bookings and almost 92% fewer jail days. And um, the center, you know, according to reports, um, has saved a million dollars a year as of 2013. So as you described that, that seems seems like a no-brainer. So is there, is that something similar been proposed in Utah? Is, is there, what are, what are officials saying? Well, so they, it does sound like a no-brainer, but the difference is, just how much money is going to be behind that kind of reform and that level of reform. And uh, as we mentioned in the story, Utah did seek to to implement some changes uh, over the past couple of years and partially in light of this lawsuit from the Disability Law Center, uh, starting with one of the cheapest options, which is uh, what they call their outreach program. It's treating low-risk patients who are in need of this restoration, uh, these restorative services, but treating them in the community or while they're in jail rather than getting them to the state hospital. Um, and so the, the difference is that this is, that this is just one piece. Uh, this outreach program is just one piece, but it is, uh, it is a step. Um, when we mentioned that Disability Law Center um, lawsuit, there's been a settlement announced in that lawsuit shortly after our our article was published that is uh, requiring the Department of uh, Human Services, they've agreed to put some more funding into this system and to work on reforming things. And one thing that they'll need to comply to 
if this uh, settlement is ultimately signed by a judge here in the next couple of weeks, will be drastically reducing those wait times. Uh, in fact, the first kind of benchmark is that within six months of that settlement being signed, uh, the Department of Human Services will need to get the wait time down to 60 days. And the ultimate goal is that a year and a half after the settlement is signed, it'd be down to that, our tar- what the state's new target is going to be, that two weeks, that no one will have to wait more than two weeks to get into the state hospital for these kinds of treatments. Does that seem like that's going to happen, to get the wait times down that far? At this point, all we can do is is wait and see, but uh, both the Disability Law Center and the Department of Human Services, when the settlement announced was announced, they were very optimistic, uh, very positive about the changes that they think can be made here. Uh, they think that these changes are attainable. Um, we don't have all the details yet on exactly how they propose going about doing this and what they're going to do to really reduce those those wait times, but we do know that they're committed to to finding more funding, putting more funding there that's going to assist with these kinds of treatments and making it more available. Uh, but as to, to exactly how this is going to be done, we're, we're anxious to see how they're going to proceed. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about maybe the, the even bigger picture. Your, your article focused on wait times, but uh, uh, this uh, system in Miami-Dade County, they're focusing on not only restoring uh, people to competency, but uh, getting them... Uh, getting them back to mental health, right? I want to talk about, expand that picture and, and take us back to the three people that we talked about uh, um, as well. We'll talk about this uh, more with uh, Deseret News reporters Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero. We're talking about, as the headline says, the new asylums, how Utah traps the mentally ill behind bars. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible by our members and Cash Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic with providers Drs. Wood Benin and Blotter and PA Jamie Grange practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, 753-7880. And support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators, one story at a time. Rare earth metals, we need them for our gadgets and the Pentagon's weapons, but China has cornered the market. So they now control from the basic raw materials all the way to the end products that go into, you know, all your fighters, all of our smart bombs, everything. I'm Kai Rizdal, the Rare Earth Monopoly, next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking about uh, mentally ill and jail. And the headline of a recent article in the Deseret News is The New Asylums, How Utah Traps the Mentally Ill Behind Bars. The reporters are Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero. They're joining us for the hour, and uh, you can comment here as well at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Um, 
the uh, Desert News Editorial Board is uh, calling for the uh, legislature to uh, go into special session to fund and fix the mental health system. So they're calling for the system to receive immediate funding to reduce wait times, get timely treatment. But also, number two that the the editorial board is calling for is uh, more funding to aid mentally ill people long before they're funneled into the criminal uh, justice uh, system. Uh, so, Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero, one of you tackled this. Uh, you, I think you've talked to or at least tried to get comments from many elected officials and other officials, um, some of which, some who didn't want to comment, but to those who did comment, what's the, uh, what's the consensus? Yeah, yeah um, exactly. In the immediate aftermath of our article, we reached out to many, many lawmakers, um, did not receive an overwhelming response from the top um, political leaders in our state, which would be Governor Gary Herbert, Senate President Wayne Niederhauser, and Speaker of the House Greg Hughes, who couldn't really reach them. Um, we did reach some other um, some other lawmakers. Um, Steve Ellison, a representative from Sandy, talked about how he was very committed to working on this issue and wasn't really aware of just how bad it had gotten. Um, the I would say the consensus, however, is that um, lawmakers we talked to seemed to to not exactly know what the next step was. I mean, there were a lot of ideas um, that were kind of smaller scale, things like these jail-based um, forensic beds. But this very top-down, um, expansive mental health reform, something like what Miami-Dade County had um, started 15 years ago on the leadership of a judge who was tired of seeing people cycling through his courtroom over and over again, that wasn't really mentioned in our interviews with legislators. You've uh, you talked with Representative Ed Red uh, here in uh, Logan. Um, he's a medical doctor. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, he he takes a wait and see approach. He he mentions the offsite unit at Salt Lake County Jail. Says want to want to see how that works. Yeah, he wants to see how that works. Sees if it gets the um, waiting list down. Um, you know, Representative Red himself actually works at Cache County Jail and has been volunteering there, helping oversee mental health care um, at the jail for, I think, about nine years, um, even though that is not his specialty. He works under the tutelage of um, two other mental health specialists. Um, because up in northern Utah, they really um, have a huge shortage in um, mental health providers. So that kind of speaks to the problem of um, community health, uh, mental health care needs. Um, but yeah, he said that rather than sort of jumping into this huge reform and investing a lot of time and money in it, you know, a risky proposition, even though we've seen it work in other places, um, he would rather wait and see and, and, and see if this um, um, jail-based uh, program works. Of course, with the um, settlement they kind of have to make something work. They're, um, they don't really have a choice. So um, we'll just have to see um, what they decide to do in this next legislative session. I want to read uh, this one. This is another commenter uh, commenting on the Deseret News site to uh, this story in the Deseret News. By the way, we have uh, another six or seven minutes left with Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero, the reporters uh, behind this, uh, this in-depth report. Um, I want to kind of connect up this comment to the Normans, the uh, parents of... Uh, of this this man who descended into mental illness and uh, now is accused of killing a, a roommate at the state hospital. This is Mighty Might, uh, talking, uh, uh, I believe, about, he doesn't identify this, but talking, I believe, about the mentally ill. Where are they supposed to be? Living on our sidewalks and panhandling to self-medicate? 
no thank you. We have enough of that issue already. We need to start looking at rounding up those off the streets and putting an end to panhandling. Enough is enough. Society was much better before liberal laws regarding these issues were unleashed on our society. Round them up, commit them, force them into treatment, but by all means, keep them off the streets. Enough of liberal laws already. So Mighty Might, uh, I don't know how many people would share Mighty Might's opinions. Some would. Uh, would be, um, you know, just, just keep the mentally ill away from us, and, uh, and, and we'll be okay. Yeah, I remember reading that comment uh, shortly after our story was published, and uh, on the one hand, not being overly surprised by, by the sentiment expressed there, but what I was surprised by was the fact that uh, this commenter definitely appeared to be in the minority of those who reached out and who left uh, some kind of a comment on on our article. Um, most of them offered a lot of sympathy for these families. They talked about the need to to treat the mentally ill better and to, to approach them as someone who is mentally ill rather than approach them uh, as criminals and, and simply locking them up. Uh, but there is no question uh, that, uh, so this commenter does raise a point, that uh, under the law there are some avenues to, to obligate someone who's mentally ill to accept and to comply with with treatment, where just uh, asking them to do so on a volunta- voluntary basis uh, may not always work. I want to uh, get a sort of a where where they are now. Of course, uh, Matt Hall is is dead, um, and uh, you you had a follow up to uh, to Diane uh, Priggy. Uh, she's she found a bed. They found a bed for her. Got her off the wait list. So she's at the state hospital. Yes, yeah, she is at the state hospital. Um, as Daphne mentioned, she was facing uh, two different uh, cases in two different justice courts, one in Provo and one in Orem. Uh, Provo has, has run out of time under that uh, statutory limit to treat her, but Orem uh, still has about three months remaining in their six months that they would have. So uh, what the prosecutor there has said is that the goal is to see how much progress that she can make in uh, those three months in in the Utah State Hospital and then determine how to proceed. I think that uh, one of the goals being discussed is possibly a civil commitment for her, which would be be, uh, committing her to the care of the county, putting her in the county's care to to provide mental health treatment, to connect her with, with housing, and to kind of resolve the case that way. Um, so that with that, it's just kind of a wait and see until that next hearing as uh, everyone waits to see how she does. And what about James Norman? What's uh, Where is he now? James has uh, his next competency review hearing on Thursday. Uh, as uh, someone's receiving care in the Utah State Hospital, which uh, James was transferred back to the state hospital from the Utah County Jail just shortly before our article was published, uh, they do have to, they do have some some pretty fixed timelines once they're receiving care um, when they need to appear in court uh, for uh, an update on competency and on their status so that decisions can be made about how the case will proceed. Um, the, his parents talked about how uh, there's always been a hope for a resolution through a plea deal, something that would reduce that charge down from murder, which they've never really felt was appropriate. But uh, ultimately, uh, for that to happen, James Norman would have to be found competent to proceed, and he would have to agree. 
Now, James Norman has a you know a murder charge uh, potentially against him. Um, probably not going to to be out anytime soon. Dan Priggy might uh, it would be um, I guess an, an example of a lot of mentally ill. However, case is resolved. Um, she'll probably be back out in the street and maybe back in the system soon after committing some other misdemeanor. That is a possibility, and I think something that uh, that the community there is hoping to avoid uh, if they do manage to secure a, a civil commitment for her, uh, because then she would still be kind of under the care of the county, even though this this charge wouldn't necessarily be over her head anymore. Uh, they, you know, there there are some options for the case to proceed, but uh, it's questionable whether or not the the county would pursue it. But that would be an alternative to simply cutting her loose, to simply uh, setting her out, and, and could hopefully prevent uh, more run-ins with the law. Well, we reached the end of our time. A very uh, important reporting here, uh, and appreciate uh, Daphne Chen and Mackenzie Romero, Desert News reporters, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, the uh, report in the Desert News, a uh, recent report is headlined, The New Asylums, How Utah Traps the Mentally Ill Behind Bars. You can uh, comment on this story by going to upraxcess at gmail.com. And uh, thank you so much. I'm Christy Aachen, one of the Access Utah producers for Utah Public Radio. We produce extraordinary shows for our UPR community, following fascinating ideas, important issues, and compelling stories. Access Utah is also a program that listens to you. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us, we'd love to hear them. Please email us at upraccess at gmail.com or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on social media. Follow and post on our Access Utah Facebook and Twitter page. Just be sure to include the hashtag IAMUPR. And thank you for listening. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.